So like I said, I'm going to start this with uh, double blind. And um, I want to recap a little bit before we get into it, um, some of the things that we've talked about before. Um, a few weeks ago, I talked about John chapter 3, and we talked about the, the usage of the metaphor of light in the Gospel of, of John. And I mean, the, this, this um, entire book is just full of these references to light and dark and, and other things as well. But I wanted you to remember the, this one section because there's a fulfillment here happening in John 9 and also the entire Gospel of John. And the, pro the prophecy in Isaiah um, chapter 9, verse 2 is that the people walking in darkness have seen a great light, and on those living in the land of deep darkness, darkness light has dawned. So that was given, you know, 2,000 years, 1,000 years before Jesus. And then in John, when Jesus is on the scene, it's fulfilled because Jesus is the light of the world. And we talked about that in, in our topics in uh, John chapter 1. But in chapter, nine, or in, in chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, the fulfillment is the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and, through the, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. So his own were his people. And this chapter in chapter 9 is very interesting because it takes place right after Jesus is at the Temple Mount, and he has a confrontation with the, the Pharisees. And it climaxes with this argument about who he is and that if they knew who he was, they would change their attitudes. And at the end, um, Jesus makes one of seven I am proclamations. And this proclamation is, is, uh, is basically saying, hey, I am God. So he actually makes seven I am statements. And that's one of them. The other seven are, um, I am the bread of life, and that's in chapter 6. He says, I am the light of the world, and that's in chapters 8 and 9. He says, I am the door, in chapter 10. I am the good shepherd, in chapter 10. I am the resurrection and the life, in chapter 11. I am the way, the truth, and the, truth and the life, in chapter 14. And I am the true vine, in chapter 15. So at the end of chapter 8, Jesus says, before your father Abraham, I am. He makes a, a, a declaration that he is God in the flesh. The great I am, the, the description of God the Father, Jesus claims that for himself. And what they do, they're so frustrated that he says that because of their religious piety and their blindness to who he actually is. They pick up stones and they're going to stone him right there on the spot. But... It wasn't his time yet, so he slips away. And so chapter 9 takes place right after that. So imagine Jesus walking out of that chaotic scene. People, and this, this is another thing too. This blows me away. So Jesus, there's an irony here. Jesus is the creator of everything. He is the person that the Pharisees say that they worship and that they do their religion for. He's the one. And they don't see him. And here they are. They're going to stone him their very own God. It's just a weird kind of ironic kind of twist that the very people that should know him the most because of their religion and their traditions 
have the hardest time seeing who he is. So um, this, is, this chapter 9 is when uh, he, he encounters a blind man. And there are seven miraculous signs in John's gospel. And I'm throwing these sevens out here for you. There are probably more. And, uh, but I just want you to say or know that John would, would have been a, a gambler who played seven-card stud. So um, here are his seven miraculous signs in, the, in John's gospel. There's actually a few more, but they're not like publicly done. There's the, one of the signs is when he tells the uh, man who came up to, from Capernaum to Samaria and says, you know, he wants his son healed. He says, well, go, your son will be better. And the guy believes him and he turns and, and leaves without getting a sign or anything. The guy just accepts it, believes and leaves. So that one's not listed in this because that wouldn't be seven. <laughs> so um, Jesus' seven miraculous signs in John's gospel are the water into wine. That's at the wedding. The healing of the official's son. Um, well, I guess it is there. Look at that. He heals the invalid at Bethsaida. John chapter 5. Uh, he feeds 5,000 plus with two fish and five loaves. Actually, that's probably, it could be as many as 15,000 because that's just the men that were there, 5,000. He walks on water in John chapter 6. And as far as light and dark analogy, um, he walks to them at night on water. Um, he heals the blind man in John chapter 9. That's what we're going to talk about today. And he raises Lazarus from the dead in John chapter 11. So just a little backstory there on, on the Gospel of John. So we'll jump right into this. Um, and I'm just going to just read through it because it, it's, it's written so well and it's so descriptive. I don't know if you could do any better. I'm just going to add things as we go to maybe uh, help us think about things in a way that's different. Um, so in chapter 9, verse 1, right after he left the Temple Mount, it says, as he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? So being born with a, a physical deformity or a handicap in that day was often and, well, almost always seen as a, as a result of sin in somebody's life. And uh, so that was the natural thing that the disciples jumped to is, is Lord, what did, what did this guy do that he's born blind? And, uh, and Jesus... Uh, says, neither this man nor his parents sinned. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, as long as it is his day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. So Jesus is declaring that he is the light of the world there. It's weird, this guy, uh, the you think about who he is as a human, he is like an outcast in society. Imagine being born blind. It's all you've ever known. Everything has always been dark. Because of that kind of like daredevil, he's probably got really good hearing. And he's going places where people pass by because the way he pays for his, his life is by begging. So he has to go where there are people going by. And here he is. He's sitting out there within earshot of people that are walking by. And he is considered a sinner. And he's totally dependent upon the, the giving and generosity of people that pass by. And he hears disciples, most likely, he hears these disciples say, hey, Jesus, who sinned, this guy or his parents, that, that he's born blind? 
And then he hears Jesus say, you know, in the darkness. And I'm sure he's tuned in. He says, neither his parents or him sinned. You imagine he probably had this like perked up moment. It's like, what? Probably something he, he hasn't heard. He's probably heard being, you know, just maybe being spit on and, and ridiculed and get out of the way. And, and maybe some people occasionally gave him some money so that he could afford to eat. But, but this guy is definitely not the cream of the crop in society. He's not a person that people would go to. But it's the person Jesus went to. And not only went to, but was planned. He was born for the very purpose of being there at that time so that God could demonstrate his power and give us this lesson 2,000 years later. I just find that totally crazy. So uh, after saying this, so Jesus is in touching distance. He's close to this guy. You ever go like down on one of the corners, and when you see the guy begging on the side of the road, and you kind of like, you know, you drive a little further over to the middle, and you try not to make eye contact, because that's like a signal. It's like, hey, buddy, I'm going to give you some cash or something, but you don't. Oh, well, I mean, a lot of times I don't. I like try to keep my eyes over here and pretend like I don't see this guy. Jesus wasn't like that. He went right up to him. And after saying this, he spit on the ground, and made some mud with the saliva, and he put it on the man's eyes. <laughs> what? He spit. He spit. I wonder that sound. You know, if you're blind, is that? Did he do that, or was he? Did he have like? Did he? He know what he was going to do, so he pre-prepared his saliva glands. So there's a lot of stuff in there. I don't know what he did, but whatever he did, he hawked a loogie on the ground, right? And then he reaches down and he makes a mud ball. And then he flattens it out, these mud cakes, and he sticks it on this guy's eyes. And I, I wondered, I actually did a little research on this, because I'm like, what in the world? Why would, why would you do that? I've always wondered. So a couple things. Um, in Jewish history, a lot of writers, I think it was Josephus, actually said that the spitting saliva was seen as a medicinal compound. It was something that was actually thought to have healing properties. So. Um, it's possible that Jesus wanted to give him a, a visual cue or an audio cue that, that he was planning on healing him. I mean, that could be one of the things. The other thing is that this guy's probably heard people spit and spit at him. He probably has been spit upon, right? So maybe he thought, aha, Jesus missed. Maybe he missed. Maybe he was going to spit on me, but he missed. I don't know, but it's interesting. It's fun to think about. So he makes the mud pies and he puts them on his eyes. And the other thing that comes to mind there is like, you know, what did, what did God make humanity out of in Genesis? It's like the dust of the ground, right? That's, and so there's like maybe something there too. It's like God can regenerate the molecules of this world into something else. So it, it could be symbolic of that. It's, it's fun to think about. But uh, so he puts the mud balls on his eyes. Guy's blind, Right? He's got mud balls on his eyes, and Jesus says, go wash. He says, uh, go then wash in the pool of Siloam. And the, the word Siloam means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seen. So he has not seen Jesus yet. He's heard Jesus. He's felt Jesus. He got spit in his eyes from Jesus, but he hasn't seen him yet. 
And all he knows is what he heard the people say, is that he's a rabbi. When the disciples asked rabbi who sinned, he probably heard that. So he knew he was a rabbi or teacher. That's the extent of his knowledge that we are aware of right here. So he goes home and he's seen. And imagine the parents. I think of Amity, my new granddaughter. Can you imagine the expectations for nine months. You, this baby, this blessing is coming to you. And then when it's born, there's a problem. And in that culture, the problem is, is symbolic of sin. So all these expectations of this, this child, and then the birth, and the like, oh, what is going on? But yet the love that you still have for this person, and then you see him grow up, and you know he's blind, he's handicapped. You do the things you can for him. I'm sure they loved him to death. And in fact, there's evidence as you go along that this guy was knowledgeable. They taught him things. He wasn't just like, from his family anyway, he wasn't just pushed away. So, so he goes home to these people. And can you imagine how happy they were to see him? And to realize that now he could see them. And the neighbors are like coming out and they're like, whoa, this isn't, isn't this the guy that used to be begging by the, what's going on? And then other people were saying, no, that's not him. That's some other guy that looks like him. It's like his uh, doppelganger or something. It's not, it's not that guy. And then the guy said, no, it's me. And so um, they ask him, how then were your eyes open in, in verse 10? And he says, hey, or he replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and then I could see. And they asked him, where is this man? Because I'm sure they wanted to go see him too. And uh, he says, I don't know. Well, here's where it gets interesting. And this is that second section, Cody, if you want to go ahead one. This is where religion rushes in. And I'm using religion as a broad term because religion is, isn't all bad, right? But in our culture today, there is a really a negative view on religion. So I'm using it in that context. Um, so we have this story here, the Pharisees again, who do not want to recognize Jesus as the Messiah. In fact, they've made a, a, a promise to the people in Jerusalem that if you claim that Jesus is the Messiah, you'll be thrown out of the synagogue. Now, to be thrown out of the synagogue wasn't like, oh, you know, yeah, get out of the temple courts, go on about your way. It's like a lot of religious organizations today. You get excommunicated from this faith community. You lose everything. You lose your identity. You lose your faith. The people will ostracize you. They won't talk with you. You probably can't get a job. I mean, this is a heavy, heavy threat. So don't believe in Jesus or you're out of here. So I think not realizing the extent of what was going to happen here, it says they brought the man to the Pharisees, the man who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was on the Sabbath. This kind of goes back to the other healing that Jesus did on the Sabbath in chapter 4 that freaked out the Pharisees when he told the, the invalid man to pick up his mat and to go home. And they like, they like, oh, it's the Sabbath. He can't carry his bed. They totally missed that the man was lame. And now he's walking. All they can see is that he's carrying his mat. 
And if G, and they, they, by association, if Jesus would heal somebody on the Sabbath, healing is a work, right? So that's not something you're supposed to do because you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. So he heals them on the Sabbath. So they still have Jesus in their minds, and he's in their crosshairs. And here he is, he comes back later, months later, and he heals this blind guy on the Sabbath again. And one thing we gotta, we got to remember, Jesus is in total control here. He's not, like, he's not like going through this thing and like, oh, the, the happenstance of life and this is all cruel to me. He is driving everything. Nothing is happening accidentally. He is on a mission to save the world and it's planned and he's carrying it through by his power. So all these things, that, these interactions that John is reminding us about, they're purposeful. God is omnipowerful, omnipresent. He's omniscient. He knows everything. This is totally in his control. He allows it to happen. And in fact, he arranged it so it would happen just this way. Okay, onward. <clears throat> so, therefore the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. And he says, he put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and now I see. Now some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, talking about Jesus, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, how can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. So there's a problem going on here. There's divided because there's a paradox. And the paradox is that healing on the Sabbath, if you're, if you're, not, if you're working on the Sabbath, then obviously you're not from God, but if you can heal somebody, well, then you must be from God. So how do they rectify this? And because they can't see, because they're in the dark, because they don't recognize Jesus as who he is, they can't make the connection that correlates it. So what do they do? They do what all good religious people do. They grilled the parents. They made them feel like crap. So they call on the parents because they don't believe the guy's testimony. And they say, um, well, first they ask him before they call on the parents. They said, who, who is this guy? What do you say about him? It was your eyes he opened. And he says, uh, you know, he's a prophet. This guy, this blind guy, I wish I knew his name. Um, he said, he's a prophet. He just flat out said it. But they still did not believe, because this is Jesus, they still did not believe that he had been blind. And he had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. So they didn't even believe him. They're like, eh, just kind of, nah, Jesus can do this. He wasn't really blind. Call on the parents. Let's get to the bottom of this. Uh, and they, is this your son? And uh, is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that now he can see? And then verse 20 says, we know he is our son. And we know he was born blind, but how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who said that they had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said he is of age. <laughs> so, so imagine the parents so excited to have their, their restored child back. And they're like, yes, look at this. I mean, this is awesome. Our son, we love him. The Pharisees want to see him. Okay, let's go see the Pharisees. We're going to tell them this awesome thing that happened. They get there, and because the rules weren't right, 
Because he did it, Jesus did it his way, the author of the rules. They make the parents feel awful. And they put them under threat. Can you imagine the interrogation room that's here? And the fear of them of losing their status in society by saying the wrong thing. So, the blind guy goes under the bus. Ask him. <laughs> Ask him. He's of age. So, one thing nice about this, this verse is that it tells us this guy wasn't like some, you know, like seven-year-old. It wasn't some really old guy. This guy was of legal age, but he wasn't like too old. So legal age in the synagogue, if I am understanding correctly, is after the age of 13. I'm guessing he's probably a little older that, than that because he's got a little chutzpah, this guy does. And you'll see this in a minute. He, and he's got a little knowledge, too. Um, so they ask him again. <laughs> they still do not believe. Is this your son? He says, we know he's our son. And they say, ask him. And then apparently there's some time lapse here because... The son came, and apparently he left. Then they called the parents in, and they're like, ask him. So then they call the blind guy, the guy who was blind, back in again, a second time later. And it says, a second time they summoned the man who had been blind, and give glory to God by telling us the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. We know Jesus is a sinner. And this guy, I love it. He says, whether... He is a sinner or not. He's talking about Jesus. I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. And I can just see them getting more and more incensed. And then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He's like, I just told you this. He answered, I have told you already, and you did not listen. He's talking to the elders, right? The leaders of the Pharisees. And you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? <laughs> and this is salt in the, in, the, in the wound here. Do you want to become his disciples too? <laughs> he already knows that they're threatening to throw anybody who acknowledges Jesus as the Messiah out. So now he's asking them if they want to become those people or not. This, is, this guy is great. So what did religion do? Well, they hurl insults at him. Um, and they say, you are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses. But as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. <laughs> and the man answered, again, full of chutzpah. Um, I was going to use another descriptive word there, but I thought, not, I can't do it in church. Um, but... He's brave. And he says to them, now this is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this, was, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. <laughs> he just lays it out there. He just calls it, he sees it clear. Well, he sees it clear for the first time. And he just throws it out there and he lets them have it because they're supposed to be the ones in the know and they can't even see it. And he sees that they can't see it. 
To this they replied, you were steeped in sin at your birth, obviously, because you were blind. How dare you lecture us, the religious elite? And they threw him out. They threw him out like they threatened to do. Um, they ruined him. I mean, in their mind, they're ruining him. So this guy, born blind, comes to God thinking of how awesome he is, and he goes to the people that are supposed to be the ones that accept him and embrace him and help him celebrate that now he is regenerate, he's redeemed, he can see, he's not blind. And they reject him. They reject him and throw him out of the society. That's scary stuff. So, Jesus didn't throw him out. Jesus went out of his way to find this guy. So Jesus heard that he had been thrown out, and he found him, and he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Um, that term, um, Son of Man, that's Jesus, seems to be Jesus' favorite self-designation. It's the way he describes himself often. And it's a weird thing because there's verses where he talks about he he uses words so that some can't see, that they remain in darkness, and others can't see. Well, this guy, this blind man, can see, literally and spiritually. Um, if, you, if you look that up, that, that verse, you know, that, that designation as the Son of Man is probably comes from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. And it's a powerful um, section. It says... And this is Daniel talking about one of his visions. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man. Coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will never pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So when Jesus said, do you believe in the Son of Man? The blind guy knew this. He knew that term, Son of Man, from Daniel. Obviously, this, this blind person had some kind of instruction growing up. Probably his parents. Probably wasn't uh, some kind of schooling because he was a reject. He was a sinner. But he knew. And he says, who is he, sir? The man asked. Remember, he has not seen Jesus yet. He's heard the voice, but he hasn't seen him. Who is he, sir? Tell me so that I may believe in him. And Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Jesus claims to be that person who has dominion and everlasting dominion and authority and that his kingdom will last forever. And what does the blind guy do? The blind guy that now sees, he shows that he sees spiritually, and he says, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. He worshipped God. Jesus said, now Jesus was in his entourage. It wasn't like it was just him. The disciples were probably there. There are other people that are divided, even the Pharisees. Some of them kind of thought he was probably okay. And uh, so Jesus says, For judgment I have come into this world, so that the blind will see, blind men, and those who see will become blind. 
So there's an indictment here on the pharisaical attitude of blindness. Here's their creator, and they cannot see who he is, even though he's shining bright. And some of the Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, what are we blind to? And Jesus said, if you were blind, like this guy, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. That's a heavy indictment on these people, the leaders, the people in know and the religious structure. And he says, your guilt remains. But this man, who is supposedly the sinner, he sees, so he's no longer blind. That's a, that's a really cool thing. Okay, so what does all this mean? <sighs> Go one more there, Cody. So when I read this, I had a lot of conviction. Um, some of you know my background, so I'm just going to be totally honest here. Um, I grew up in a religion that claimed to be the only way. And they had unique things about their theology. Their, they had a dogma that made them the only, made us, made me the person of knowledge and that somehow got me to heaven because of this, this legalistic view that I had the structure that I thought you had to maintain. I think of a, a time when I was in high school, me and my friend were out running around doing stupid stuff. We did stupid stuff all the time. I wasn't a good kid, but I went to the right church and I had done the right things according to the procedure outline of A, B, C, D, E. And we were talking about God, got into a God discussion. And he says, oh, I'm a Christian. <laughs> and I said something like, no, you're not. You're not because you didn't get baptized the right way. I believe this. And, you know, and in my mind, I felt like I'd really put him in his place. So then, flash forward again to college. I was in the, in the student union building, and there's a, uh, a group there, Campus Crusade for Christ, you've probably heard of them. And somebody came up to me and said, hey, we want to share the good news, the four spiritual laws. And they started going through this. And they got to the end, and I said, yeah, that's all great and everything. But you guys are false teachers because you didn't get baptized the right way. I was 100% serious. I look back now and I'm so ashamed that I didn't know better. But I believe that because that's what I was taught. And this happened a third time. I won't tell you about that. But other than to say that the guy did it too was a guy who actually went with YWAM. He was like the biggest partier in high school. He went to South America on a mission. He was on fire for God. He came back, and then I told him, you're not even saved because you need to get baptized, right? That was my saying, baptism, right? And I'm so thankful I don't, I'm freed from that. And it's embarrassing. But the truth of the matter is, a lot of us have these kind of things in our life that we've built up. They have nothing to do with, with even Scripture. They're just rituals and rules that we feel like we have to do. And we have this attitude because it's been instilled in us since we were little kids, that this is the correct way. This is the right way. And what got me all thinking about this is that we actually got an email this, this month about our statement of faith, that we didn't have one out on the thing. And, and we knew we needed to have one, but we hadn't put one up yet. 
And so I started to think, what would be our statement of faith? If we put one up there, what would it be? And I started thinking about all this because we're dealing with it. And like the statement of faith could be the religious structure that puts obstacles in front of people that are trying to ask questions and trying to know Jesus. And that scared me. So, but at the same time, you have this problem where we need to have a bedrock of faith. We need to have something that we stand on. We need to have our, our unnegotiables so we know where we are. But yet somehow we have to be able to remove the obstacles that keep people from coming to Jesus. We don't want to be the Pharisees here who don't let people know the healing power of Christ. We don't want to be that. The gathering is not that. We are, you know, we talk about this a lot. A lot of us are refugees from those kind of structures. So this is a long way around. It was great to go through the Gospel of John chapter 9. But in the next, I don't know, month or as long as it takes, we're going to try to work together and come up with our statement of faith. And I think we're going to probably do this on two levels. One level is going to be the presentation of who we are as a church and what we value to the community that can somehow, um, you know, remove the fears of that maybe we're like some kind of weird cult or something so that we'll be, can be seen as mainstream. But we're not going to present our 17-point articles of must-haves for you to be part of this community. Why would we build obstacles before people even get here to ask a question about what we believe? So we're going to do that. And we're also going to work on our bedrock. And we want to do that together. So this is going to be coming. Things that you know, things that are important to you, that you believe. We don't want to just like, uh, you know, the elders, we don't want to just come together and say, oh yeah, that's what we're going to do, stamp it, ah, and be the Pharisees. We want you guys to be part of this conversation. And together, come together as a community and put these things together. Because what we want to do, we want to build the bedrock of our belief system here at the gathering. So that any one of us at any time knows that we're standing on that. And that's our starting point. And then we're going to be like Jesus. That's what we want to be. We want to be like Jesus that goes out into the world. And he meets the people that are the outcasts. Maybe it could be a rich ruler or two here and there. I don't know. Meet whoever God, Jesus wants us to and be him to the world. Show them his kingdom. Bring them in. Let them ask the questions. Let them stand on the bedrock of what we believe and build our church there. I mean, that's his church. And so that, if the band wants to come forward, is going to happen in the next little bit. I hope um, this week you'll think about this stuff. Think about your religious structuring. Try to think about where and what you might be holding on to that somehow presents obstacles for those that are genuinely seeking. I mean, you can't be a, a wuss about it. I mean, if people are throwing Molotov cocktails of, of whatever at you just to cause an issue, I mean, you, don't, you, can, you can be a little firm with that kind of stuff. But if people are actually looking and they're trying to come to the Lord, we don't want to be standing so anyway, that's all I have for today. Um, thank you for listening. 
and uh, let's worship. <laughs>